Welcome to I Used to Be a Therapist. I'm so glad you're here. This week, our subject that we're talking about is hope. So this is a big deal right now. For many people, I might even say most people, this year has been filled with disappointments and loss, and hope has been hard to come by. When we have so much disappointment and change and uncertainty, it's just really hard to hold on to and cultivate hope in our lives. But the fact is that hope is exactly what we all need right now to keep us moving forward. So today I'm sharing a conversation that I had with Kimberly Presky. Kimberly is a licensed social worker from Hanover, Pennsylvania. She has a part-time counseling practice and also teaches and speaks about school shooting recovery by combining her personal experience as an adult school shooting survivor and her professional training. Following the Sandy Hook Elementary School incident, Kimberly was appointed to serve on the Pennsylvania State Joint Commission Advisory Committee on the Prevention of Violence. Kimberly has a great story to share with us and some practical insights on cultivating and maintaining hope, even when life seems to be getting in the way. I know that this is going to add value to your day. Let's listen in. My name is Dr. Wendy Bruton, and I used to be a therapist. Welcome to my podcast. Leaving my career as a therapist, business owner, and counselor educator was a big risk. But now, as an author, coach, entrepreneur, and podcast host, I am fulfilling my passion to help people move forward toward an essentially better life. Each episode is filled with stories, information, and ideas that I know will be valuable to your life and to the lives you touch. So if you need a therapist or just someone who used to be a therapist, I know that this is a place that you will feel valued, valuable, and learn to move forward from what you used to be. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much, Kimberly, for being here with me. It's so nice to get to meet you and get to see you. It's good just to connect. Thanks for being here. It is. It's nice to connect with people all the way across. I know. <laughs> From one side of the continent to the other. We're on the opposite ends, aren't we? We were just talking about that. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you live in your family and uh, just things you like to do. Tell us a little bit about you. So I live in a small town called Red Lion, Pennsylvania, and I practice therapy about 40 minutes away in another small town called Hanover. And uh, the nearest kind of bigger city is York, um, which is still pretty small. And then we're about 40 minutes south of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which is the capital of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have a lot of access um, to legislators and there are some universities there. Um, and so, so it's nice to have a balance between living in a small rural area and then being able to go do bigger stuff. And Baltimore is about an hour south of where I live. Um, so, so I get to do a lot of things. Um, I'm married. I have a husband uh, that I've been married to. My husband's Jason and we've been married for 26 years. Um, and so we've gone through a lot together from college when we started dating um, before we were married, all the way through through now being empty nesters. I have a 25-year-old son who is a high school choral uh, director. 
and he just got engaged uh, to his his fiance, and she's a high school theater teacher. Um, so that's pretty exciting. The next stage of life. And then we have a, uh, a 10 year old rescue cat that I got <laughs> when I began grad school. So he's a handful, uh, but we love him. So, and then my spare time, um, I, I do therapy part time and then I do a lot of policy pieces the rest of the time. I uh, like a 50, 50 balance between those, um, because I think they relate together for my folks, um, having accessibility, having an understanding of language, um, getting policies that enact for people to actually get the care that they need so that they can afford it yeah. um, directly goes with direct practice. And then when I want to go and hide out by myself, uh, Longwood Gardens, which is a, a beautiful garden of Pierre DuPont um, here in Pennsylvania um, that he, he requested, um, is gorgeous. And uh, so I'll go there and take a camera and hide out for a day here and there and just wander around. And somehow I still end up being a social worker because people get lost or don't sure. know something. And so people are always asking me questions. I think once you're a social worker, you're, you're kind of always a social worker. People just know um, that's what you do. I think no matter what. I think too. Yeah. I think we, you like give off a vibe or something. So I want to ask about that. Why did you become a therapist? So I became a therapist. Uh, it was not what I thought I would do in life. So my father uh, taught uh, high school physics uh, when I was a kid. I grew up as a TK, a teacher's kid. And Me too, by the way. I kind of fumbled around into science and uh, got a biology bachelor's, road trail guides, and, and did environmental education. And then when I had my son... Um, I was teaching preschool and, and starting to go back. He was seven and six, and we were doing the kind of transition that most moms do. You know, you go back and you decide what you want to do with your life. And so I, I volunteered at his school when he entered kindergarten and then uh, started substitute teaching and realized how much I loved special education, um, but I also substituted in, in regular grades. And I played around from elementary all the way through high school kids. Um, through our, our LIU system, which is our special education system here in Pennsylvania, um, County Share, Lincoln Intermediate Units, and, and also through our districts. Here we have 501 school districts in Pennsylvania. Um, Holy cow. So they're all independent. And um, so that's a lot of, of districts um, for a state to manage. And so they all have a different flavor. They're all based on, on little towns and um, so I got to teach in a lot of different areas and see what I really liked. And in 2003, I was uh, 33. My son was seven in second grade in the same district. And that, that spring was a little odd. Um, there was a gas main break here in town and uh, a few other odd things. And we had a, a bomb scare um, at the high school. And uh, this was 2003. So it was after Columbine, mm -hmm. after the Oklahoma City bombings. After 9-11, mm -hmm. um, which being from New York originally, upstate New York, that was a big piece for me watching mm -hmm. uh, the 9-11 pieces. And so um, in April 2003, uh, we had a bomb scare at the high school and the weather was not conducive. So they couldn't follow their typical plan and came to us at the junior high where I was supping. And I got to see a lot of pieces behind the scenes that didn't make sense. Um, Two years before, we had had a machete attack in an elementary school. Uh, it was a, a man who didn't have children there. He had had um, stepchildren 
that had been in that elementary school uh, years prior, and he had made threats and and went in and uh, injured three children and 13, 13 children and three adults in that incident um, and, and traumatized that school in our same district. So after the bomb scare, um, at the end of that day, I went down and saw our principal and and said, you know, today was not okay, <laughs> and kind of lit into him and, and said what I saw. Um, and I had been lucky enough to have some free bells um, for that whole thing. So I got to watch the entire thing happen. And so I didn't know at the time that he spent that weekend, it was a Friday, he spent that weekend um, making phone calls to all the other administrators in the district to make changes. And 11 days later, uh, one of our eighth grade students uh, came in to our school. We uh, had our kids, our eighth graders would hang out in our cafetorium and our seventh graders would hang out in our gymnasium. And he brought guns to school and killed our principal and aimed at another student and then killed himself in front of half of our student body uh, right mm. at the beginning of the school day. Um, oh my goodness. So that's how I became a therapist. <laughs> uh, a yeah, long was, version. That was your, your story. You're like, oh my gosh, now I have to do something different. Yeah, it wasn't immediate. So um, I had gone down to the room the day that it happened and uh, hung out right outside of it um, and looked and saw everything and then decided to go back down the hall to the classroom I was assigned. Um, so I heard everything and, and all the chaos that ensued. And I was one of the first adults to be seen that day after. But I never got a referral and we did nine days of interventions with our kids. You have to remember that Columbine was very big. There were some like Paducah that happened before our event, um, but there wasn't a lot of information. And so they got information from a few places to support. And for nine days we had interventions and we mostly focused on the kids and we didn't focus on ourselves. And so I, I finished out the next few weeks, um, still subbing there. And then I decided I was never going back and I left. Yeah. Um, because I felt so disenfranchised and I didn't have the wording for that at the time. So I ended up with untreated PTSD for five years. I didn't sleep. I didn't really eat and I didn't function very well. Mm. Um, my son called me the head in the bed. Um, and at five years, I got to a spiritual director a little bit before five years who started to help me untangle that barbed wire and then got to a trauma specialist and worked with her for eight years, um, putting everything back together. And I, I got to the point of trying to decide education or, or going back into something else. And I realized that the promise that I made with Jean, our principal, uh, to do better next time, I needed to keep that promise. And the only way to keep that promise was if I had the little uh, letters after my name for yes. mental health. And so I, I made a choice to sacrifice going back for education and started to pursue a master's in social work instead. And so you had a pretty big why, like why you went to do that. That was a very big, clear why. Do you feel like now you're fulfilling that why as a counselor, as a social worker now? I do. I think it came in little pieces. So part of trauma that we don't always teach people is that there's a sense of loss. You know, there's, mm. there's a grief component usually. And there's lots of little losses and big losses and then a loss of power and voice and choice. Mm -hmm. And when you're in a community trauma and everybody responds differently, some people talk about it, some people don't, some people need to do things, some people don't. Um, when you're in a, a widespread group like that and there's hundreds of people and then their families and their friends and the community owns it, it's hard to figure out 
what's right for you when it doesn't look like what's right for everybody else. And so it came in little pieces. I I got to understand it. So uh, the critical incident stress management um, community was very helpful. Um, They were very open to explaining things. They're a peer-based model from first responders and it's peer to peer. So fire to fire, police to police. And there are school-based teams now as well, Um, but there weren't as many back then. And so they were very helpful in explaining what happened in the aftermath and how I got missed and didn't get a referral and and putting those pieces together of what could have been different. Mm -hmm. And so um, little piece by little piece, I gained it. I didn't understand all the global pieces um, back then of, of just general social work. I didn't know what SNAP was. I didn't know how hard it was to apply for, for benefits. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand you know, that typically it does take people years to get help for mental health. Mm-hmm. And, and a correct diagnosis is easily six years for people to get. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that, that it takes you know, meeting up to three to seven therapists to find a fit. And then you might only see them for a little while. Um, these are things that we don't talk about. Um, so that for me is really fulfilling. Uh, I think for me, when I finally, um, I went to Newtown a few years after and uh, got a chance to work with some of the educators that had been in the Sandy Hook Elementary School incident. And that for me really felt like, okay, I think I finally have fulfilled that promise to him. Um, there was still a few other pieces I'm slowly working on a workbook um, for school staff um, to put the pieces together, but I don't feel as compelled to keep pushing to learn on on those pieces. I think I'm finally feeling confident and competent enough in the trauma pieces to, to, to feel like I have it. um, That's that's amazing. Which is nice. Quite a story. Like honestly, quite a big event, huge event. Very big in your life and a big part of your story of why you became who you are now. I mean, yeah, it has to be very impactful in your life. Well, today we're going to talk about hope and that's a big shift. I mean, from something that feels, I'm sure at the time, very hopeless, right. To feeling some hope for the future and yeah, so we're going to talk about hope, and I'm really excited to hear about what you have to say. First of all, why don't we start with you just maybe defining what you think hope is, and maybe what it isn't. Yeah, so hope for me is is that kind of finding a shining place, and it doesn't have to be a big place. I think it's it's finding that tiny little sliver sometimes. Um, it's interesting because we're in this really weird place right now where everybody has this shared event going on. Absolutely. And yet it's so different, right? Everybody's experience is, is across a broad range based on a lot of factors. Mm-hmm. But there's this commonality of talking about how it has impacted everyone to an extent, um, whether it's freedom or access to things or choices. Um, we have that commonality. So so we all understand now what it's like to lose some of that freedom. And for some people, it is a very traumatic experience. Mm-hmm. You know, parents that are struggling to deal with teaching kids online is a very real stressor. <laughs> it's a very uh, real stressor. Yes. It's really hard to have kiddos at home 
people are, we're all under stress and we are all experiencing something that is just never expected and has significantly changed our life. Yeah. And I think even just the simplest things, you know, part of that, that piece of hope is things that took two seconds to do in the past and very little planning. You know, now things take two, three, four times as long if you have to plan. Uh, here in Pennsylvania, we have to wear masks. So, mm-hmm. you know, you need to plan on that. And it takes longer to stand in lines and be distanced apart for anything. Mm-hmm. And here we don't have things on the shelves all the time. You know, not everything is there that was always there before. Exact same thing here, or they cost more. Sure. Uh, or you have to run around to multiple places to get the things that you used to get. Yep. So, so part of that hope, I think, is sometimes just backing down our expectations mm-hmm. of ourselves and of others mm-hmm. and realizing where good enough is, mm-hmm. that there is a good enough that, you know, you may always have bought this brand and, and I'm just as brand loyal as anybody else. Uh, you know, right. there are certain things I like. And sometimes it's just backing down and figuring out what can you make do with mm-hmm. um, and being creative. And, and sometimes that's the hope in it is, well, you know, we're trying this different thing and it may be awful or it may be great. And we discovered something new, but that possibility of it. So really what I'm kind of hearing from you is that creating hope where there feels like no hope takes a big mind shift, like and a mindset that has to be changed. I think it's a shift. And yet it seems like it's very small pieces all put together. So it's those very small little baby steps Mm. where you take a a small change at a time and you don't even realize that you're picking hope back up sometimes. I think in working with, with folks with trauma histories or depression symptoms, Mm -hmm. they don't even realize they're catching it until they've got it. Um, you know, because they just start those little teeny pieces. How, how do people know that there is hope? Like, how do you know when somebody has caught that vision again for a future? You know, I mean, I guess that's kind of what I would think that what I, how I define hope is that there is some sort of vision that is positive for the future where there might not have been before. I think a lot of times it's hearing it, you know, or you see it, it's a change in their voice or um, the tone of their voice or how they come in dressed or what they bring to share, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the stories that they tell and there is still grief and there is still loss and there are still, you know, processing those pieces of it often at the same time. It doesn't mean that that stuff has all gone away. No. It's just an addition to all those pieces. There's that future orientation that's there mm-hmm. where they're looking forward to things, mm-hmm. whether it's connecting to another person or they've started writing, uh, you know, three things to be grateful for. And, and they're writing the same ones over and over again. And that's okay. That's and great. then suddenly something else pops in on that list. Oh, I like that. That's true. So why do you think it's important for our mental health to work on cultivating or creating hope? I think it's important because, 
it changes how we think of things and it changes how we feel about things, right? So if we're anxious and right now, you know, we sit in this big place with politics and racism and economic upheaval, and um, it's a very tumultuous experience for people to watch mm-hmm. and, and we want it to change and we want it to change now. And sometimes we don't have the ability to change that. And so we have to figure out ways to function within what we can't change or what we don't have the power to instantly shift. Mm-hmm. And so having that hope is kind of a balancing piece. I think um, a lot of times people work in jobs that they may or may not enjoy. And that's one we frequently land on where um, they have a cost, you know, they might go to a job that they don't like or work with people that um, maybe they, they don't connect with. But if they can find hope in other places of their life, whatever that might be, and it might be all sorts of things, you know, the sky's the limit. It may be books that they read or people they talk to or um, listening to podcasts or listening to different types of music um, or trying different foods that can balance out the pieces that they define as negative. And a lot of times they can find pieces that are positive, even in the negative Mm -hmm. um, places of growth or connection or change Mm -hmm. um, that aren't as awful or don't feel as awful. Yeah. And sometimes I think when you are in a place that feels yucky like that, when it feels hard and discouraging and hopeless or Maybe you feel stuck there and that there's no way out of a job that you don't like, for example, or, or a relationship or whatever it is, finding that piece of joy, or I don't even know if joy is the right word, but something positive somewhere else can create hope that there is something positive here. And it also can create hope, I think, too, that you don't have to stay stuck. That there's something else. Yeah, finding that something else, I think, is, is really good. How do you think it can impact our lives, though, if we don't try to cultivate that or if we stay stuck in the place where we feel like life is hopeless? I think that's a lot of times where we find people starting to have the depressive symptoms, mm-hmm. you know, or uh, a big piece of that is isolating, you know, and a loss of energy is a, a big piece when there's a shift in the ability to sleep or, or sleeping too much, not sleeping enough, mm-hmm. um, eating too much or eating too little. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're not interested in the things you used to be interested in and nothing looks appealing. Yeah. It's like shutting down. Sounds good. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like shutting sh- down people are yeah, shutting or down. not returning phone calls to your friends or not reaching out to people mm-hmm. because you don't have the energy to do that. It's a really easy slide into that sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it becomes that cycle where you don't have energy and you can't work hard enough to push to shift yeah. because you're stuck in that hard place where there just is nothing. And, and that's, it's really hard, hard when there's no energy there. No, it, it's really, really hard. And I imagine, you know, because of your story and your experience, you have found yourself in places of hopelessness, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'd love to hear how, maybe maybe something tangible that you used or 
or and you have your clients use to help create hope in life? I think one of the big tools that I used for myself and and with other people is um, writing a list of things. And so a lot of times I give an assignment of go for the number of years that you've been alive. Um, and so write your age, which is more of a challenge for older folks. And I always say, you know, just aim for it, but you might not get to the higher numbers. Um, and write one thing per year. So it can be a unicorn idea. It can be something you can't afford. It can be a small and easy tangible, you know, low hanging fruit idea, anything in there and that the sky is the limit. There are no limits on it. And a lot of times when people write those lists, there is something on there that they identify with and that they like and that they'll catch onto. And a lot of times it's something from the past that they haven't even thought about that they used to enjoy, um, whether it's, you know, going to car shows or looking at car magazines or um, drawing and they haven't drawn in years or reading a certain author and they go back and find that. Uh, and a lot of times it catches them with other people because other people are involved in it. So they start to do this thing and then they connect to other people, whether it's through a book club or going places and they start to meet people and, and find that commonality again with other people and get connected back into relationships. And so I think that is a big piece for breaking the cycle of, of the, the hopeless feeling and the despair that goes along with it. Um, is connecting to others, that, that peer piece. Um, sometimes people find it in peer support groups where, you know, they find that, oh, like, I'm not the only person that felt this way. Mm -hmm. Nope, you're not the only person that felt that way when you have that normalizing and you realize, oh, I'm not alone in this. Uh, yeah. It's a good place to be. Yeah. And I think when you see other people who are maybe a step ahead of where you are, and you see that their experience is that they're they're doing okay, you know, that they are, you know, they're not stuck where you are and that they have a life that has moved on a bit anyway, maybe to the next little step, right? But it does mm -hmm. give that hope when you can see your experience in somebody else. I think it's uh, one of the things that is really hard about right now that we can't get together to do that, right? And so finding those places, even online or whatever, it would is it, really important to create that. And then let me hear a little bit more about this list. Are you saying you you think we should create a list of things that we have enjoyed in the past, or things that uh, something we want to do, or what is that list for? Gratitude or what? So usually it's a list of things that people have maybe always wanted to do or places they've always wanted to go or um, books they've always wanted to read or languages or um, going to other countries, kayaking, mm -hmm. um, rafting, exploring places. Um, usually it's, it's those, it's a wish list. Um, and yeah. so it kind of starts as a, as a daydream. It, it's kind of like the magic question of the magic wand, the, the solution-based piece of if you had a magic wand, what would right. you do with it? It's that same piece only in a list form. And I so like if you that. had no, no limitations, what would you do? And where would you go? And what would you find? And so if someone chooses, like now we all have limitations, right? So in our country, I'm not flying to Italy anytime soon. 
Um, now with the pandemic, I'm not even really going to New York State where my family is. Um, but I can go online and see virtual uh, tours of museums that are in Italy right now, right? I can take lots of free things in Italian. There's lots of things to Google search right now um, and learn how to speak the language or learn more about spirituality there or places that people like to sightsee or read authors from Italy or try out recipes. And they don't have to be huge fancy ones. A lot of Italian recipes are, are pretty simple. And so you kind of gain some traction. Yeah. Um, and then, and then you try something else and find like, wow, like this is pretty good. I like this. Um, and, and there's a gain there. And once you have a few of those gains, you can keep moving. I like that. And even, I mean, kind of going back to your small baby steps, you know, even finding one thing and doing one thing is going to create another thing, right? And another. And so even if you can't, like you were saying, get to those higher numbers, even coming up with one or two or three things, that that seems like a really good tangible way to start creating and cultivating hope. Thank you. Thanks for sharing your story too. Yeah, it's, it's always interesting to look back on it and see how dark it was at the time and for how long. Um, yeah, it took a know, while. I dealt with suicidality for a long time in the midst of that. And so I think... Because it felt um, hopeless. It did. It felt hopeless because if my uh, principal had survived, he would have automatically had that ability to make change, right? He was a principal. He had his administrator's degree. He had a role that allowed him to have a voice. And I didn't know until six years after the shooting that he had spent that entire weekend reaching out to his colleagues to make changes. I noticed in the aftermath of the shooting that, that we did have changes that day. There were things that happened that didn't happen during the bomb scare because he had done better next time. Um, but he wasn't there to keep that peace with me and to go along with me to make those changes. And mm -hmm. I didn't have the information at the time to make the changes. I didn't understand emergency response at all. I didn't yeah. understand what happened to us. We just kind of got swept along. And I think that's a big piece as therapists to realize that trauma, if you don't have trauma in your own history and your own background and you're listening, it's hard to understand that a big piece of trauma for folks is getting swept away yeah. um, because it's not their choice, whether they're abused as a child or in a fire or Sure. Uh, in a natural disaster, it's a very interesting feeling to be swept along. Out of control. Yeah. 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 And uh, I think that you're right, that people who have experienced trauma, who have worked through it and figured out those things, they are very, very qualified to speak into the lives of other people. And it's somewhat redeeming of our own trauma, right? to be able to use that to help other people. And I like that you have done that. It's great. Thank you very much for sharing. I, I do want to hear, do you have anything you want people to know about your practice and what you're doing and what you offer? So I work in a very small um, group practice and I work with folks, uh, a lot of uh, folks with a trauma history. I also like to work with families and children that need uh, advocacy and connections for school. Uh, so kids that need um, accommodations or 
an understanding of what the special education system looks like, how to get the, the 504 plan here in mm -hmm. Pennsylvania, how to understand what happens at an IEP meeting, how to get those modified if they're not working. And I like working with first responders and their families because uh, it's a very different culture. It sure is, um, yeah. So those are some of my sweet spots. I, I work with a lot of people at the transitions of life and a lot of grief and loss work. Um, grief and loss work is always interesting to work with. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of, of sadness in it for people. And there's also a lot of pieces of joy and, and bits of hope that I get to see as they use the narrative process to share about what they've experienced and what that person meant to them and the, the relationships yeah. um, that they had. And so I, I think a big piece of practicing for me is, is the joining and that it's their journey and being blessed enough to witness it on the side and see where they go with it. That's, that's so great. So how can people get a hold of you? So I have a LinkedIn account under Kimberly Presky LSW, and um, people can reach me there. Uh, in Pennsylvania, we also have just announced this summer that we have a plan to become a trauma-informed state, which is very exciting here in Pennsylvania. Uh, so I spent the majority of my quarantine serving for three months on our uh, Pennsylvania trauma think tank, where we worked on the plan. Uh, it's called HEALPA, Trauma-Informed Plan for Pennsylvania. And so we are looking at the long-term pieces of doing those baby steps to change our system here in Pennsylvania. I love that. And uh, it's exciting. That so, is exciting. So yeah. people can get a hold of you on LinkedIn and we'll put those, we'll put that link in the show notes for sure. So I have three questions that I ask everybody on my podcast. So I'm going to ask um, we might know this, this already, but an event that changed you. Yeah. So the big event would be the school shooting. I sure. think um, that would be probably the biggest. And I think the other one would probably be um, growing as my son grew. So becoming a parent yeah. um, is a big change, a it's life a change. very when... big change event, right? Yeah, it's huge. And nobody really tells you that, right? You have that starry eyed vision of what being a parent looks like. And you look in the magazines and it doesn't look like the magazines. No. You know, you get those outtake pictures of a baby poop in the background of the feet you're trying to take pictures in. And, and nobody tells you that, you know, your kid might get limes when they're in elementary school and you're going to deal with that piece of it. And, yep. and just the bumps and bruises that go along with with watching another little person grow. Yep. Um, sure changes so, you. That's for sure. Yeah. Huge. So okay. I think becoming a mom and finding a mom community was probably a big one for me. Okay. The next one is a person who changed you and maybe that's your son. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So I think Tyler is, is a big person. I think um, Jean was a big person, our principal in that he and I made that promise and keeping that promise definitely changed the trajectory of my life. And then Tyler, um, Tyler and I have talked now that he's an adult and he understands it. I don't think he understood it as much when he was littler, that he was my tether to the world. And so, you know, a lot of times when working with folks that are suicidal, we do the circles uh, mm -hmm. exercise where they, uh, who they're connected to. And I always try to remind people, you know, it may be the bus driver or the lunch lady, uh, the people that you don't even notice every day that you interact with, that they do pay attention and they noticed you. Yeah. Um, and so my son was that tether for me, which was a lot of responsibility for a, a small kid at the time. 
Um, and that he had that hope. I think a lot of the time was, was my hope was in seeing him and not negatively impacting his life. Um, so, so that was an important piece. Okay. And a book that changed you. A book. Wow. I, I like books. I have stacks and stacks of them. Um, and I, I was thinking about this one. Um, there's there's two, one in the past and one in the current. So um, Victor Frankl's uh, A Search for Meaning, um, The Search for Meaning is, is amazing. Um, I think any of the books that are connected to the Holocaust now that that most of the survivors are no longer around, um, listening to their stories, either their audio stories or their printed versions, um, hearing what they survived and what they found is just amazing. And then in the current time, I think there's this huge thing of women. Um, and so girl, wash your face. Uh, I love that boy, <laughs> I wish I had that 20 years ago when I was a young mom and trying to make things look the way that I thought they were supposed to look. And, and she is so doggone transparent in that book and so open and honest and vulnerable as a young woman mm-hmm. um, and so real. Uh, intangible in that book. And so um, those would be the two All right, that I I'll think put, for now. I will put both of those links in the show notes. Those are both great books. I've read both of those books. So those are great reads. Thank you so much for sharing and for being here with me. Um, I really appreciate it. And I'm sure that people will get in touch with you and will connect with you. So Thank you again for all you have shared with us today. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you joined us. Make sure to subscribe so you can get all the episodes and you can help support our podcast by clicking the support button in the show notes or going to our website, essentiallybetterlife.com. Follow me on social at Essentially Better Life and check out my website for all kinds of information on business and personal coaching my book, and even some great stuff on essential oils. Thanks for listening. Blessings and be well, my friends.